The Institute. Institute. Institute for Justice. The National Law Firm for Liberty. Hello, and welcome to Short Circuit, your podcast on the Federal Courts of Appeals. I'm your host, Anthony Sanders, Director of the Center for Judicial Engagement at the Institute for Justice. We're recording this on Friday, May 6, 2022. And I would like to let all of you know, as I let you know on last week's show, of our upcoming Michigan State Forum on the Michigan Constitution, which will be in two weeks on Friday, uh, May 20th in Plymouth, Michigan. Uh, at the Inn of St. John's, a nice facility that that we have there ready for um, a discussion on the Michigan Constitution, how it protects various liberties, how it should be interpreted in light of its history. Uh, it's going to be a wonderful couple hours of, uh, of constitutional exploration. I hope you can join us, learn a little bit about judicial engagement, about the state constitution, and about the Institute for Justice. So again, that's Friday, uh, May 20th. You can find a link in the uh, in the show notes to to join us there, uh, former Justice Stephen Markham, among many other people, will be speaking, uh, and there's also a free lunch, which some people might tell you there's no such thing. Well, this is this is one exception, but today today is free information about some of our freedoms and even a little bit about free money. Actually, it's not so free. You have to fight pretty hard for it. Here to tell us about these issues of money and speech are Ari Bargill, an attorney at the Institute for Justice, and another attorney uh, at my employer, Alexa Gervasi. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having me, Anthony. Yeah, thanks, Anthony. Well, Alexa, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, attorney's fees and how sometimes they're a little hard to get. Yeah. So I'm sure that any listeners on this, uh, for this podcast who are attorneys, their ears just perked up because we're talking about something that they care about, getting your fees paid by the other side. Um, so in this case of Greber Zick v. Stein, uh, sorry, so, yeah, sorry, but Graberzik. Apologies uh, to the plaintiff. I'm gonna, yeah, yeah I'm going to call name. him Kenny. I'm going to call him Kenny. So in 2002, Kenny um, pled guilty to second-degree sexual assault in Wisconsin. Three years later, he moved to North Carolina and, as required, began registering as a sex offender. Then in February 2019, he had had enough and filed a Section 1983 class action lawsuit against North Carolina's Attorney General and others for due process violations. Specifically, he, he sought to challenge a North Carolina law that requires individuals who have been convicted of out-of-state offenses that are quote-unquote substantially similar to a North Carolina offense to register as a sex offender. And whether an offense is substantially similar is decided by local officials um, on an ad hoc basis. So basically, Kenny argued, North Carolina was forcing people to register as sex offenders based on a system that provided neither an opportunity to be heard or an opportunity for post-decision review, a big constitutional no-no. Um, so the district court agreed, and it enjoyed the practice. And as per usual, the government filed a notice of appeal. 
But, and this is where things get interesting, just a few weeks after filing the notice of appeal, the North Carolina legislature amended its law providing judicial review of substantially similar determinations. And it even created a review procedure for all of the class members in the lawsuit so that their earlier determinations would be considered, reconsidered. Since this change basically mooted the lawsuit, the defendants moved the Fourth Circuit to vacate the district court's order and remand the case. The court obliged, and then the district court also agreed, holding that if the class still had issues they'd need with the new law, those issues would be, need to be raised in a new lawsuit. And finally, we get to the good stuff. After the case was fully resolved, Kenny filed for attorney's fees, arguing that he was the prevailing party of a Section 1983 action. The district court agreed and ordered defendants to pay that money, honey. So on appeal, the government argues that because the judgment was vacated following the legislative amendment, Kenny didn't actually prevail and he is not entitled to recover attorney's fees. In this opinion, the Fourth Circuit basically tells the defendants, you're dumb. Section 1988, the statute that enables prevailing parties to recover attorney's fees for 1983 lawsuits, clearly applies to this case. Kenny secured a ruling in his favor, and he was also ordered pretty legitimate relief. He got an injunction. And then, because of that ruling, the legislature changed the law, mooting the case. Just because the case was mooted by defendants after and because the merits of the claim were adjudicated does nothing to reverse the clock. I think my favorite argument from the defendants is when they claim that there was no cause and effect here between the judicial decision and the legislative claim. Okay, I'm sure the legislative would just like apropos of nothing, maybe we should consider this statute and make specific accommodations for the plaintiffs who just won a lawsuit against the state, but it is definitely not because of this lawsuit we just lost. Um, the court obviously didn't buy that, and they ruled in favor of Kenny, saying that he could recover his attorney fees. But the Fourth Circuit was specific, did specifically note that this was a limited ruling, whereas other courts have held that no matter what, if a case is mooted after judgment is entered, you can still recover your attorney's fees. The Fourth Circuit didn't go quite that far. It said if it is mooted because of an award in the in the prevailing party's favor. Um, so for instance, exactly what happened here, the legislature made a change based on a judicial ruling that therefore mooted the case. That 1988 act, your, your ability to recover fees under 1988 stays. Um, but basically the fourth circuit's going to retain this causation element. Um, and I think, I think we have to take a moment and talk about the amount of the attorney's fees, um, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get into later and we'll discuss more. But so that the listeners know, Kinney applied for $60,381.15. And the state seriously tried to argue that that was excessive um, for a class action that was resolved at the summary judgment stage. Um, and don't get me wrong, 60K is a lot of money, but 
for any of the attorneys on the call. Is it? So that that is this case, and I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts. Ari, is that big money for you? It sure is big money for me. I think it's big money for most people, although it's not um, uh, anywhere near some of the sums that you would expect uh, for a well-litigated action against the government. Um, and it's far lower than what you would expect somebody to have even asked for, much less be awarded. So it, it struck me as a, as a, a relatively low sum. And you know, one of the other things that struck me as I was reading this opinion, apart from just the general audacity of the government's positions throughout, um, was what this would mean for fees under 1988. I mean, the entire idea behind this entire fees provision is to discourage legislatures from passing unconstitutional laws and to discourage government attorneys from defending uh, those laws. And here the government is basically saying, if you know, don't worry about all of that. Um, you can still pass unconstitutional laws and we can still foolishly defend them. And we won't have to pay fees as long as the legislature goes in and changes the law really quickly before a fee application comes in then they won't have to, we won't have to pay them. And that, that just struck me as so bizarre. And, and the, the court never really got into what this would mean from a policy point of view. But the entire argument being offered by the government here was just wrong in so many ways and was entirely uh, contrary to the intention, the obvious intention of the statute that provides for fees in these types of cases. Yeah, the, I mean, the Supreme Court has already kneecapped a lot of attorneys' fees in civil rights cases where you're not asking for an award of damages with this... Um, uh, with this case that's that they interpret in 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 this case Buchanan um, from 2001, which rejected the so-called catalyst theory, where if you sue about a law and then the government repeals the law before you actually get to a judgment, and it's obvious to everyone that what was going on was it was because of your lawsuit that they repealed the law, and so it's mooted, but you should get something for it. The Supreme Court said no. No, we're de we're rejecting that. We're, that that gets into you know intentions and all that. We don't want to mess with it. So you need an actual judgment in order to um, in order to get paid. And so here the government's saying it's like the catalyst theory in reverse. That um, you need if you if you get a judgment, but then the law is repealed, um, we, we th then it doesn't count because um, the judgment isn't what is important and we don't want to get into the um into the intentions of the legislature uh i it is a way over reading of buchanan and i mean anything could happen but i don't think the court that decided buchanan would then go the next step after you know talking about essentially the sanctity of getting the actual judgment to that well you can't get a judgment but then you can't get fees you know if there's an appeal that takes a number of years and they can monkey around and repeal the law anyway after judgment when they really know they might have to pay fees. Um, so this is good to see. But I, I, I still, you know, Alexa, you're talking about how there's a split now with the other circuits on whether it matters that the the repeal of the law was connected to the lawsuit. Like, I don't think. I mean, under that logic, it shouldn't be connected at all. If it, you know, if it repeals it because they're just cleaning up the code. And they happen to repeal that law, and it's a week after you got the judgment. You still got that judgment, and the the you know the 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 reason for the attorney's fees in the first place is to make these civil rights actions happen that wouldn't have happened without that incentive. And so the incentive, the I mean, the entire reason we have in Section 1988 that Congress passed it in the first place is still there. Um, I just I'm. 
I, I know the uh, I know the government is going to argue whatever it can to not pay attorneys fees in the rare instances where it actually has to pay attorneys fees. Um, but it, it strikes me as pretty darn duplicitous. Yeah, I totally agree. I think you know, it, it is interesting that the court didn't talk about any of these policy issues that, you know, like you guys, that was that was what was lingering in my in my mind. And again, we're talking about sixty thousand dollars. Like how much money has now been For a spent? class action? <laughs> right. I mean, somehow they made this a class action successfully, and it's only sick. They must have had some serious cutting of their, you know, their their bills, and they must have had a, a very conservative rate that they would have charged. Yeah, yeah. I, I should have looked, you know, before we started talking to see who their their attorneys were. <laughs> um, but it seems, you know, maybe 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 yeah. they're they did it pro bono, and they were like, oh, now let's figure yeah. out. Which is a fun position to be in. In, in case people are wondering, by the way, because I, I, we all, you know, all of us being public interest lawyers and we talk to ordinary people and they're like, well, how do you get paid and, and how does that work? Um, just in case people are wondering how this works in the public interest arena, um, we, you know, organizations like Institute for Justice, most of the money they get is from donations from very kind people. Uh, we maybe, uh, some of the listeners, uh, we don't get very much from attorney's fees awards because there's so much involved other than just the attorney's fees. But there are a lot of civil rights lawyers out there for, you know, just ordinary Joes trying to make a living where this is the bread and butter um, of how they get paid because they take on cases that where of, uh, of folks who can't pay them up front. Um, and so what happens is you have an hourly rate, but you don't charge your client, whether you're on contingency or you're doing it pro bono or you work at a place like IJ, um, but then when you actually win and then you get an attorney's fee, you have to come up with some number that you would have charged your client if you had charged your client, because otherwise, you know, how do you do it? And basically they go at, as you might imagine, they go at what the market is. So what would you pay, what would you charge if you were just a regular for-profit lawyer, given your experience, given the market of the city that you're in at the time it was, you know, that you got the judgment. And so that all goes into it. And, and this, this process spat out in this case 60 about 60 grand which again sounds incredibly reasonable for um I bet really lowballed to tell you the truth for 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 what they were able to do here yeah so for the not yet lawyers but law students who are listening this is the sexy part of being a lawyer <laughs> calculating attorney's fees <laughs> well another sexy part of being a lawyer um, is engaging on social media. Uh, and someone who's not even a lawyer thought he'd engage with his local police department. But then things took a interesting turn. So Ari, tell us a bit about that. Sure. This is a, a Sixth Circuit decision um, originating out of a town in Ohio called Parma. I'm not sure if the cheese there is as good as its uh, Italian namesake. But in any case, uh, Mr. Novak was a, a gentleman living in Parma, Ohio, uh, who wanted to have some fun with his police department. And he set up a fake Facebook page. Well, it was a real Facebook page, but a parody Facebook page um, on which he made a few outrageous statements um, that would have led anyone to believe that this was obviously a parody or joke account. Um, it was made a little bit to look like the official police page, except it said things like that the police were offering free abortions to teenagers using an experimental technique discovered by the Parma, 
police department to be performed in a police van in a giant Eagle parking lot. He also said that the police would be hosting a pedophile reform event with a no means no learning station and at which anyone who passed a series of puzzles and quizzes could be removed from the sex offender registry and accepted as an honorary police officer of the Parma Police Department. This was very obviously not a real Facebook account of the Parma Police Department, nor was it intended to trick anyone into thinking that that's what it was. So this uh, this joke spreads on Facebook. Uh, a lot of people laughed at it, and a few other people commented on the page saying that it was fake, and Mr. Novak happened to delete those comments. Um, and about a dozen people called the police station, and there's some lack of clarity about whether anyone thought the page was, was real or not. Um, but according to Mr. Novak, at most, one person thought maybe it could be real. And all told, the page was up for no more than 12 hours. The police got nine calls, uh, and in the entire time, police dispatch didn't miss a call. Um, there was no time lost that that the that the plaintiffs argued. Um, but nevertheless, you know, the deed was done. And so what did the cops do once they found out about Mr. Novak's page? Well, at first, their response started somewhat rationally. They posted on their page, their actual Facebook page, that there's another page out there and it's fake. They warned that they were investigating that page uh, and they wanted to make the public aware um, that it was out there. Um, Mr. Novak then takes an additional step of copying that statement released by the police on their page onto his page. Um, and this sort of rankles the police a little bit more and, uh, in come the detectives and the lieutenants. And I like the names of these characters. It reminds me of like a prime time police drama. Uh, Lieutenant Riley, uh, issues a press release. Uh, he has a news conference. He warns the public about this dangerous fake Facebook page. And then he tells detective Connor to get on it. So Riley and Connor are on the case. Connor contacts Facebook. He tells them, preserve all of your records about this page. We're going to find out who's behind it. He gets a warrant finally for Facebook's records, uh, and they determine that Novak is the man behind the fake page. Uh, Riley and Connor then contact Parma's law director, a gentleman, a gentleman by the name of Timothy Dobeck. Um, now, I'm not familiar with what a law director is. It sounds like some sort of a city or county attorney. Um, and Mr. Dobeck says that there's probable cause for them to get two more warrants, one to arrest Mr. Novak himself and the other to search his apartment. Um, and, you know, these warrants are obtained potentially under false pretenses, but we'll get to that in a moment. Um, so the crimes that they're charging him with when they when they arrest him are using a computer to impair or disrupt police functions. Now, this sounds a little bit more like a charge that you would levy at some sort of a computer hacker. But nevertheless, this is what they've come up with to charge Mr. Novak. Sounds a little specious, but nevertheless, they haul him in, they arrest him, they search his apartment, they seize his phones and his laptop. He spends four days in jail until he bonds out, and then a grand jury indicts him. Now, mercifully, this all ends when he finally gets this in front of a jury, and the jury acquits him of the charge. Now, that isn't where this case ends. That's actually kind of where this case begins because Mr. Novak then sues the town and the police officers under section 1983 saying, Hey, I was just making fun of you and you arrested me. You hauled me into jail and you charged me with a crime. And so now I'm going to sue you, um, and seek damages for what you did to me. Um, and, you know, first, I think we should take a moment to point out Mr. Novak's courageousness. Um, unless I'm missing something here, he would have needed to take this case all the way to trial 
risk being convicted and sent to prison in order to bring these constitutional claims. For those who listen frequently, this might remind you a little bit of James King, an IJ client who had to do the same thing after he was severely beaten by police. Um, he needed to to go all the way to trial and, and eventually get acquitted in order for him to, to bring those claims. And so that's that's what Mr. Novak bravely did here. Um, and he, he says, uh, he, he brings two claims against, well, he brings multiple claims, but, um, he, he sues both the city and the police. And now this case kind of becomes a lesson in various immunity doctrines. First, with respect to the claims that he brought against the police, he said, you know, you retaliated against me and I have a first amendment right not to be retaliated against for speaking out against my government. And the officers say, well, you know, Qualified immunity applies here. You need to appoint to a clearly established right. And Mr. Novak says, I have one. It is a clearly established right to be free from retaliatory arrest. And the court says, well, maybe, but you don't have a clearly established right to be free from retaliatory arrest if there's probable cause for that arrest. It kind of doesn't matter if it was retaliatory. Now, we're going to find that there was probably probable cause here. You used a computer. Cops could have reasonably reasonably believed that you were disrupting police behavior. And there's there's probable cause right there. So, so it's not retaliatory. And Mr. Novak says, aha, but you can't base probable cause in this instance solely on protected speech. And because everything that the probable cause affidavit was based on was speech that I engaged in that's protected by the First Amendment, that's not enough of a basis for you to have probable cause to arrest me. And that's where the court kind of says, well, maybe it's the case that, that you can't be arrested solely on probable cause stemming from protected speech, but it's not clear to us here that everything you were doing was protected speech under the First Amendment. After all, impersonating a police officer or impersonating a police department is not protected speech. And so maybe it's a question for probable cause purposes, uh, but it's an easy one for qualified immunity purposes. The cops made a judgment call. They thought that they had probable cause to arrest you. Um, and so qualified immunity applies. And so out goes his claim for officer liability on the grounds of First Amendment retaliation, when it's very clear to anybody who's reading this opinion or who knows anything about what was going on, that that's precisely what happened here. But he also had a Fourth Amendment argument. He said, you, you, you didn't have uh, probable cause. This, this arrest was wrongful. And the court says, well, you know, there's a complete defense to any sort of Fourth Amendment argument here brought against the officers where they have a warrant unless you can show that they knowingly and recklessly made false statements or omissions in their probable cause affidavits in order to obtain that warrant. And here's where things get a little bit interesting, because what did the police actually say in their affidavits to get this warrant? It's not entirely clear from the opinion, but what is very obvious is that the that Detective Connor told the magistrate, Magistrate Fink, he said, Magistrate Fink, there's a fake page um, and that we're getting some calls about it. And that's that's pretty much what's clear from the opinion was said. He doesn't say that it's a parody or that it's a joke account. Um, and he doesn't say that nobody thinks it's real. He just says we're getting calls. And that is what Mr. Novak says is what led to the issuance of this warrant that led ultimately to his arrest, his imprisonment, and his incarceration. And the court says, well, that's not enough. Maybe Detective Connor's statement could be considered an exaggeration, but not an outright falsehood. And that's a quote from the court. And so they say, these aren't lies. They're just Detective Connor's, quote, 
portrayals. And he's not required to say it's a parody account because parody is a is a legal term. And Detective Connor isn't required to supply the magistrate with the law, just the facts. And so maybe he exaggerated a little bit or he left a thing or two out. But ultimately, he didn't lie in order to get this warrant. And so you don't have a claim against the officers for a violation of your Fourth Amendment rights. Now, to me, that stinks. It should seem pretty obvious that there's a very big difference between uh, a probable cause affidavit that says there's a fake page and we're getting phone calls from people who may think it's real and some guy created a parody account and we're getting some phone calls from people who aren't sure what's going on. I think the action of the magistrate in those two instances might have been different. But nevertheless, out goes his Fourth Amendment claim. And so all that really he's left with against the officers is this claim of malicious prosecution. With respect to the prosecutor, they say, hey, he made a totally independent decision. He reviewed the page. He found out they'd received some phone calls. He determined it wasn't protected speech, and he decided to move forward with the case. But you could have a claim for malicious prosecution if you can show that Detective Connor lied at trial. And Mr. Novak says, aha, Detective Novak or Detective Connor did lie at trial. He lied when he said his police work was disrupted because he said he had to stop working on another case. He postponed a DNA swab. He said he missed a pretrial conference. But if you look at his actual calendar, both of those things were on different dates, dates that didn't coincide with the investigation into my fake page. And the court said, well, that's, that's quote, not quite a smoking gun. It was just negligence or an innocent mistake. And so, boom, out goes that claim. No malicious prosecution. So but that's the smoking had, gun standard that I don't remember yeah, the, seeing before. The, the, in, in these I, I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't taught that in law school. Uh, and uh, I just actually learned the smoking gun standard last night when I was reading this opinion. Um, but nevertheless, that brings us to municipal liability. Um, there's this case out there called Manel that some people might be familiar with, especially if they're familiar with these various immunity doctrines. And basically what Manel stands for is the idea that you can't sue a municipal government for the actions of its agents or its officers unless you're able to tether those actions of its agents or its officers to an official policy or custom of the county or municipality that you're suing. And so Mr. Novak brings a Manel claim against the uh, the city of Parma, and he, he starts out by saying, look, this was an authorized action by, by law director Dobek, um, who said that it was official policy for them to, to go after me when he made the call that there was probable cause. And the court kind of dispenses with that pretty quickly, and they say, well, if every time a city attorney decides that there's probable cause to pursue something, that equates to a, you know uh, an authorized action sufficient to justify Manel liability, then, then everything is a, is a municipal action. And so they kind of kick that. But there are two other bases that I think uh, he alleges for Manel liability that are a little bit more persuasive. One is that by failing to train your officers on the First Amendment, you're establishing a policy or custom that allows them to violate people's First Amendment rights. And that enough can be sufficient to satisfy the standard necessary to get liability under Manel. And the court says, well, yeah, they do provide some First Amendment training. Um, the First Amendment training they provide is on protests. And because that's a key duty of the police, that makes sense. But the police aren't trained on the, quote, intricacies of parody because that's not a key duty of the officer. And so there's no failure to train because they, they, their failure would have only been uh, as to the failure to train on the intricacies of parodies. And so it can be justified in this instance. And finally says, okay, well, this is at least an established policy or custom because you have a, a systematic 
habit or custom or pattern of indifference to protected speech in criminal investigations. And the way that you show this when when you're trying to establish a policy or custom under Manel is you can point to a series of actions that are consistent with what happened to you and say, this pattern of things is exactly what happened to me. This shows a policy or custom on the part of the police department. And he handed the court a list of cases where Parma had to backtrack or got it wrong on protected speech oriented issues. And the court, and this is, you know, really you know, aggravating, the court said, well, just because you have a long list of cases where the same thing happens over and over again, doesn't mean you've established a pattern of behavior sufficient for establishing liability under Manel. And so, boom, that's his last Manel claim. He's got no claims against the officers, no claims against the town, um, at least under federal law. And then the court moves quickly to what it frankly derisively refers to as a jumble of his state law claims, which are all grounded in the idea that Mr. Novak has to show maliciousness. Um, and so Mr. Novak says, I can show maliciousness. Um, you know, they, they, they testified that they were paying no attention to my first amendment rights when they initiated their investigation. They weren't even thinking about them. Mr. Uh, Detective Connor lied in his PC affidavit when he said that people thought the page was real when in, in reality, nobody thought it was real. Um, he didn't say that it was parody when it was clear that it was a parody. Instead, he just said it was fake. And then he lied to the grand jury when he told them that people honest to God believed the page was real when there was no evidence of that. Um, and most of the phone calls that they were getting just wanted to confirm that the page was in fact fake. And the court said, and this is, this was kind of the, the encore, I guess, or, or the a, a fitting coda uh, in this opinion where the court says, uh, this is closer to a mischaracterization than a misrepresentation. All of these um, quote unquote inaccuracies that detective uh, Connor offered both the magistrate, then the grand jury, then the actual jury. Um, and at the end, they say this is at worst negligence, not maliciousness sufficient to satisfy the quote jumble of state law claims that you brought. Um, I had to read that sentence four times. This is closer to a mischaracterization than a misrepresentation uh, before I fully understood what it meant. I'm still not happy about it. Um, but then, you know, that, that kind of tosses all of his claims. And then at the end, there's this weird parting shot after very dismissively um, addressing and, and uh, rejecting and brushing aside all of Mr. Novak's claims. There's this weird parting shot from the court about how none of this should have happened uh, because evidently somebody in the police department should have just acknowledged that this was all foolish. They should have stopped what they were doing. Um, and the court cites to a, a Barry Weiss article about having courage to say no. Uh, and that is how the court ends its opinion. Uh, Mr. Novak has no cause of action either under state or federal law under the police officers or to, uh, against the police officers or the municipality. Um, despite the fact that he very obviously was engaged in protected speech under the first amendment and to anyone, um, who has any sense, uh, would determine that this was obviously a retaliatory arrest because he made them upset because he made fun of them and he made them look foolish by saying that they were offering abortions in a van by a grocery store. Um, so that is, that is the, uh, ballad of Anthony Novak in Parma, Ohio. And, um, it's, it's quite a shame that, uh, his, his claims were dis dispensed with so summarily. Alexa, do you have any lines to add to this ballad? I have so many bees in my bonnet right now. Just so many. So 
for one. Like for for regular short circuit listeners, you know that there is a two-pronged test to the qualified immunity analysis. First was there a constitutional violation. Second was that violation clearly established. But because the Supreme Court did some things that did, courts don't no longer have to address both of those prongs. And we see the problem with that rule so clearly in this opinion, right? The, the court, it clearly went out of its way to avoid saying that Novak had a constitutional right um, in that Facebook page and that it was parody and it was protected speech. And there are a few ways that we know that that is what the court believed. One, this is not the first time that this case came up on appeal. It came up on appeal earlier and Judge um, Thapar, who wrote the opinion here, probably mispronounced that. That's the theme today. Thapar, but yeah. who, yeah, who issued the opinion here, he issued a previous opinion where he was like, this is obviously parody. Like, and... And was very clear that he knew that this was a joke, which parody is obviously protected speech. Um, but then we get when we get to this opinion, we see a real recoil from that previous position. And it causes problems throughout the whole opinion. So Ari, those those Monell um, reasonings that just didn't make sense all the way throughout, there would have been a really easy way for the court to have avoided all of those reasonings. It could have just said there wasn't a constitutional violation here. If that is what the court actually believed, it could have just said no constitutional violation, so no Monell claims at all. But the court knew that what happened here was wrong, but it skirted past, it just skirted past that question to the clearly established prong. And, you know, it, it got it wrong there too. Um, this, this is a clear example of an obvious violation and courts going out of their way to find factual, uh, a, a factually identical case and demanding that, which the Supreme Court in Taylor and McCoy in the last couple of years has said, we do not need the Fifth Circuit and a similar First Amendment retaliation case has said, obvious constitutional violations are obviously clearly established. Um, and so it's just a real shame to see uh, that the Sixth Circuit isn't recognizing that and has gone so far out of its way um, to avoid recognizing what is a constitutional violation and doing so protecting the government. Um, and then I, I think that, that closing line is almost like an apology from the court. Like, we know we're not doing the right thing here. Our bad, but we're not going to hold. We're 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 going to give a verbal indication to the officers that maybe they shouldn't do this again, but we're not actually going to give you law to protect this type of violation from happening ever again. Yeah, the the cops should get some courage, but we're not going to express that courage ourselves. The cops should get engaged, but the judges they're not going to. Right. Yeah. And Anthony, what struck me the most about this opinion, or I shouldn't say struck me the most, because there were a lot of <laughs> things that struck me very heavily and in equal ways. But uh, if you if you kind of juxtapose this decision with the decision that Alexa was talking about earlier and just reading for tone, um, on the one hand, Alexa had the government coming in with an untenable position, in my view, and the court methodically and politely addressed each argument and um, finally said the government doesn't win. Um, reconcile that with this opinion, which admittedly is from a different appellate circuit, but reconcile that with this opinion where um, they rather dismissively, I think, address Mr. Novak's very legitimate 
arguments um, and almost kind of brush them aside and and make it seem as though they don't even belong in court. Um, I just think it says a lot about the way that government often gets treated and government lawyers often get treated in court um, very politely when they're wrong and with extraordinary deference, um, even when they're, well, also wrong here, but in the, in the, in the view of the court, uh, correct. Yeah, what what blows my mind is that the the court does all this analysis on the the intricacies of how First Amendment law and Fourth Amendment law relate with these claims that someone can make after they've been charged with a crime, and, try, and so there's this stuff about probable cause and what the state law prosecution was. When really at bottom here is this law as applied to a parody page is totally unconstitutional. And I, you know, maybe that's why the jury acquitted him. Uh, we, we don't know what, what the grounds the juries use, but they never actually get to that question. Even in the qualified immunity context, it's all dressed up in this probable cause and what, you know, there's a three prong test or what I, I, I frankly kind of lost track um, in some of that analysis. And so, um, how, how at the end of the day can the court just not address that? When you know, I started. I just thought about the uh, um, uh, some of our younger listeners may, may not uh, remember this, but but the um, uh, the 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 uh, Jerry. I was looking for the name Jerry Falwell Hustler case from the Supreme Court from the eighties about this this outrageous article about Jerry Falwell. And nobody who read that would think it's actually a serious article about all these heinous things that like he did with his mother and uh, other things I think uh, were in the parody. Um, no one looking at this page is going to think that it's actually police department. And if they do, um, you know, we have to have an objective standard because there could be some just Looney Tunes person out there who would believe it. Um, and none of that comes up in the, in the opinion. Um, I don't get how... It's it's a sign of of our of our immunities law when the court never even gets to that question. Yeah, and just to add to that, Anthony, which I totally agree with, as as we're sitting here talking about it, um, it occurs to me that this is very much why people hate lawyers. Um, if you look at this through the eyes of any normal person, it's very very obvious what's going on here. This guy made a Facebook page <laughs> mocking the police, so they arrested him. And then there's 16 pages of judicial hand wringing about whether or not there's anything wrong with that. Um, and that is, I mean, that's also also part of what makes our some of our work aggravating and and why we're doing what we're doing. Um, but uh, that's that's another thing that I just found uh, very interesting is that you know leave it leave it to the lawyers um, to confuse what is very patently obvious to anybody who's looking at what's going on. Well. If the listeners live in the state of Michigan and want to, in a live setting, learn some of uh, this about what's going on, uh, as, as Ari was just describing, um, or in other constitutional settings, please, as I said earlier, uh, check out our uh, a link in the show notes to um, to come in two weeks to uh, two weeks from recording this podcast to our forum on the Michigan Constitution. Um, but before then, I would like to thank both of our panelists for coming on. I uh, really appreciate you guys uh, joining us today. Uh, we talked about two opinions that were real opinions of real courts, um, not leaked opinions that you might have just found on the uh, internet somewhere. We're not talking about leaked opinions today. Um, and so I want everyone to go out and get engaged with real law. And so that's why we're going to sign off by asking that all of you 
get engaged. Thank you.